A word of warning. There are descriptions of violence in this episode that some listeners may find disturbing. Boston, January 1964. Multiple women have been found dead in their apartments, most of them strangled with their own clothing, belts, robes, nylon stockings. They had been sexually violated, their bodies staged in degrading positions. By the time the body of the last victim, Mary Sullivan, was found, newspapers reported at the time that when it came to identifying a suspect, police were at a total loss. The press coverage was relentless and the public was on edge. One newspaper featured an article comparing the Boston Strangler to Jack the Ripper, the serial killer who targeted women in London's East End. The article said the fear in Boston resembled that of late 19th century London, when at least five women were slashed to death. It also pointed out Jack the Ripper was never caught. From ABC Audio, this is Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler. I'm Dick Lair. This is Episode 2, The Search. By January 1964, the Strangler had eluded capture for 18 months. The situation was urgent, and the threat wasn't just isolated to the city of Boston. The killer had struck in surrounding communities, too, sometimes venturing 25 miles away from the city. So the Massachusetts Attorney General stepped in. It is and impossible to say just when and if strangulation cases will be solved. Attorney General Edward Brooke was one of the highest ranking and one of the few black public officials in the country at the time. He was a Republican who won in an overwhelmingly Democratic state and would go on to be elected to the U.S. Senate. Before becoming attorney general, Brooke had successfully fought corruption in city departments. He took over the Boston Finance Commission, which Time Magazine described as a municipal watchdog group that had not barked in years before his tenure. But the Strangler was a different beast. It was novel to have a serial killer continue to kill while the police are looking for him. James Allen Fox is a criminologist at Northeastern University in Boston and an expert in the Boston Strangler case. And that was frustrating to the investigators, frustrating to the public. So on January 17, 1964, two weeks after Mary Sullivan's death, Edward Brooke summoned two dozen law enforcement officials from across the state to Boston. The Associated Press reported that after a two-hour meeting, A.G. Brooke made a declaration. He would take the unusual and unprecedented step of creating a special task force charged with hunting down the Strangler. And this had never been done before. This is John DiNatale. You heard him in episode one. John's father was Boston police detective Phil DiNatale. Phil served on the task force with fellow detectives working the Strangler case in other jurisdictions. We have murders in Boston. We have them in Salem, Massachusetts, north of Boston, in Lynn, another city north of Boston. So you had a number of different police departments working on the same cases. A.G. Brooke put Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley in charge of the task force. 
The assistant AG was the son of a wealthy Boston family with no background in criminal law, but he was organized and determined. It was his job to keep the investigation on track. And with the public demanding answers, John Bottomley turned to a new technology to give investigators an edge. Back then, everything had to be written down. Everything had to be typed out. It was really laborious kind of work. This was the first time in the history of the police department that they had used a computer to collate all of the information they had. One of the first companies around in the computer business donated a computer to the police department to allow them to start to input all of this material that they could collate it. They had five, I believe, five detectives that formed the task force. And then they had three female clerical workers who were probably as important and as vital to the investigation as the guys out there doing the work. Newspapers reported that the task force would also include medical examiners, handwriting experts, and forensic psychiatrists. Criminologist James Fox says the team was asked to look at the evidence and use it to draft a psychological profile of the killer. You have this crime scene, which suggests something about the perpetrator, whether they're careful and detailed and meticulous, or more frenzied and haphazard. And then you take that knowledge about the crime scene and you compare it to individuals who can be identified through other ways. So oftentimes you can almost eliminate subjects if their behavior that you know about doesn't fit that crime scene. And it wasn't just the crime scene that police considered. It was the victims as well. Who a person kills can say something about the killer himself. Police considered what the age of the victims could tell them about their killer. These were all elderly women. They speculated that he was someone who was raised by a domineering, cold mother, and that these crimes were a way for him indirectly to get revenge against the brutality with which he was raised by that mother. But that theory would be upended a few months later with the death of Sophie Clark. When we suddenly had a 20-year-old, they had to start revising their idea, which led some, at least, to believe that there were two killers. One particularly flawed theory that reflected the prejudice of the times was that because the suspect only killed women, police reportedly thought he must be gay and therefore hated women. Another police theory zeroed in on the difference in age of the victims. One news report said police were considering that it must be more than one killer because a man who murders and sexually assaults older women won't get the same twisted satisfaction from attacking younger ones. But also, investigators had to wonder, what if there was a lone killer and that person was changing his M.O. to throw police off? The Daily Times News reported that psychiatrists thought the strangler was probably in his 20s from a lower middle-class background. To his friends, he was quiet and normal. He might even be married and come across as a model husband, one article theorized. But Fox says these sorts of profiles don't actually give law enforcement much to go on. Profiles tend to be very general. They don't tend to lead you to a particular suspect. In fact, the rate of accuracy of behavioral profiles is extremely low. 
it's more educated hunch rather than a science. While police worked feverishly, Massachusetts Governor Endicott Peabody announced a reward. And the terms of the reward spoke to the persistent uncertainty of the case. The Associated Press reported that $10,000 would be given to anyone who had information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for each murder. So if somebody had information about each of the 11 cases, he or she could collect a total of $110,000. That would be a million dollars in today's money. Newspapers reported that the task force was flooded with tips. Here's John Di Natale, the son of Detective Phil Di Natale. Every nutcase in Boston thought they were the strangler. So they had to spend more time pushing people away than going after the guy they really wanted. And then, of course, you had the disgruntled girlfriends and wives who were turning boyfriends and husbands in. I think my husband's a strangler. Oh, really? My dad would laugh at he said some of the calls that they would get. And after two minutes, they realized that, all right, this person, she's a nutcase. She's just trying to throw her husband or boyfriend under the bus. But there was a lot of that back then. Without any solid leads or suspects, investigators ventured even further from science into the supernatural. Extraordinary methods of investigation are needed to deal with these highly abnormal crimes. In early 1964, Attorney General Brooke announced that the task force was hiring a Dutch psychic named Peter Herkos. During a press conference, A.G. Brooke was careful to note that public dollars were not being used to pay the psychic. A private citizen who wished to remain anonymous would cover the expense. The A.G. said the public had everything to gain and nothing to lose from enlisting Peter Herkos's help. His gift of psychometry and ESP, Mr. Herkos projected his description of a psychological personality of the criminal or criminals. Two, suggested probable patterns of action by this psychological personality. The detectives on the task force were not optimistic. But as some news organizations reported, it appeared that Peter Herkos had successfully lent his abilities to some previously unsolved cases in Europe. Detective Phil Di Natale's grandson, Miles Jewell, has listened to what he says are recordings his grandfather made during the investigation. One thing he talks about on these tapes is how desperate everyone was to try and figure this out. To the point where It didn't matter what angle, if there was an opportunity that they could add value and dispense some information that would help solve this case, they were going to do it. People were dying, and no matter what your personal belief was, if, if something could help, people were willing to put aside those preconceived notions and, and kind of get into it. Peter Herkos was a colorful character. He was once a house painter and said he developed his psychic powers after falling from a ladder, busting his skull, and laying in a coma for three days. Miles Jewell says there's a particular story his grandfather would tell about Peter meeting with the detectives. There was a moment where somebody showed up late and Herkos knew where this person was before and had kind of called them out for some suspect behavior. And that's when everyone was like, maybe we should take this a little bit more seriously. 
Peter Herko said he would get visions by handling objects related to a case. So investigators let him hold the nylon stockings and scarves the killer had used to strangle his victims. They also let him see photos of the crime scene. And Mr. Herkos looked at photographs of the victims. He touched certain objects and described the type of individual he thought was guilty for the crime. Peter Herkos reportedly surprised investigators by describing details about the crime scene they thought no one else knew, like the fact that Mary Sullivan was assaulted with a broomstick. And Peter Herkos claimed he knew other details. He said the killer had a thing for women's shoes, according to the New York Times. This fit neatly with another tip that the Times reported police were looking into. Someone reported a lonely, disturbed man was canvassing the Boston College School of Nursing, hoping to get a date. He was a ladies' shoe salesman who lived in Back Bay. But when police tracked him down and questioned him, they discovered he had a legitimate alibi and ruled him out. And that was it for Peter Herkos. After eight days, he left town. Later, he would be arrested in an unrelated case for impersonating an FBI agent. His involvement with the case drew ridicule in the press. The Worcester Gazette mocked the whole ordeal with a headline that read, Occult Nonsense in Boston. As law enforcement continued to exhaust both conventional and unconventional avenues of investigation, reporters were watching their every move, particularly two journalists from the Record American newspaper. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. As Boston law enforcement worked overtime to solve the murders, the city's newspapers competed feverishly to print scoops on the story. Their jarring headlines kept the community on edge. Strangled girl lived alone. Circle of fear widens. Boston Globe. Psychiatrist says Boston strangler to go on killing. Berkshire Eagle. Seek to draw a psychological profile of Boston strangler. North Adams transcript. Certainly, it was a big story. Criminologist James Allen Fox again. 
Newspaper sales went way up. <laughs> the only way people get their news from newspapers. And uh, Boston Globe and the Record American uh, sold lots of copies. People were scared, and they wanted to know everything they could, thinking that would help them protect themselves. The Record American was a daily tabloid, and it was the fourth murder, 75-year-old Ida Erga, that caught the attention of Loretta McLaughlin, one of the paper's reporters. This is Loretta in a 1985 interview with North TV, describing how she went up to her editor and asked if she could look into the murders. And he sort of said, why, he said, Loretta. He said, they are nobodies. And I said, that's the whole point. Why should anyone be going around killing women who are nobody? I think she felt great empathy and sadness for them that they'd come to this end and they could have easily been forgotten. Mark McLaughlin is Loretta's son. He was in elementary school when his mother began covering the Strangler. When we were really little and she was working on these very intense stories, she kind of managed to not bring it home. At the time of the Strangler stuff, she would come home and put us to bed and oversee the brushing of the teeth and tell us a story. And it, it was kind of remarkable how she could shift gears. Mark says in later years, his mother would tell them more about what she was working on. In the case of the Boston Strangler, he said she sensed there was something more to the story. She wasn't just some kid. She knew the ropes. She was only 31 or 32, but she'd been a working reporter for a decade. I think she figured out that this was a much bigger story than just a daily crime assignment. I think it was the connectedness of it and the link possibly to a single killer that raised it to a much different level. Like a lot of good reporters, I think she had a bit of detective in her. It's hard to tell who's more interested in the case, the police or the reporter who's covering the police. And as a woman in the 1960s, covering the police was no easy matter. Women journalists were rarely given the opportunity to tackle male-dominated beats like crime or politics. And when they were, they had to fight to be taken seriously. But Loretta was tough. She liked to remind people she was a street kid from Southie, a blue-collar Irish neighborhood in Boston. She was one of the more direct people in the news business I ever met. Tom Mulvoy is the former managing editor of the Boston Globe, where Loretta later worked. Loretta was right there in the middle, swinging her elbows if she had to, or, or patting you on the head one way or the other. She certainly was a feminist. She was also a newsroom or editorial godmother to a lot of folks, particularly young women. She had this habit with people of grabbing you by the crook of your arm and dragging you into the nearest office and closing the door. And you said, holy cow, what's Loretta up to now? What Loretta McLaughlin was up to in those early years with the Record American was scooping the competition. Loretta teamed up with another woman reporter named Jean Cole, when they wrote the first big series on the serial killings, the lead headline declared, Two Girl Reporters Analyze Strangler. But the readers would come to know them as more than just two girl reporters. In fact, they'd become a vital source of information about the killer's every move. Jean Cole was one of the writers of a piece suggesting that law enforcement across different jurisdictions should team up and share information. This was published, by the way, shortly before Attorney General Edward Brooke announced the creation of the task force. Together, Loretta and Jean would publish nearly 30 stories about the case, 
They're credited with coining the phrase Boston Strangler. They visited the crime scenes and talked to neighbors. They claimed in their reporting that certain medical authorities leaked evidence to them about how the victims were killed. Here's Tom Mulvoy again. Certainly if your job is police enforcement, and Loretta McLaughlin is telling a lot of readers what a lot of policemen don't know, that's pretty embarrassing. Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole described patterns in the stranglings that, up until then, only investigators supposedly knew. For instance, that the killer spent time rooting through his victim's belongings, but valuables appeared to be untouched. So robbery didn't seem to be the motive. The stories Loretta and Jean wrote also summarized the criminal profile that experts of the task force were developing. A psychopathic personality with sexual deviations. But police had an issue with these articles. Disclosing these details could derail an investigation. Here's James Allen Fox. It's the customary strategy of task forces to withhold certain information from the media and families so that they could verify whether someone who's confessing is really the killer. James says some people may come forward and say they're the killer when they're really not. There are compulsive confessors. There are individuals we know that, that come forward and say they committed a crime, they want the attention, but then they start giving you details that were wrong, then you can rule them out. That's very common. Another danger with having too many details circulating about the killings, copycats. Would publishing these details unwittingly create a blueprint for new crimes? Members of the media might have their sources, unnamed sources, and try to get details that no one else has. They want to scoop. And that can be problematic. It can jeopardize an investigation because there's certain things that they want withheld. And sometimes you have loose lips that sink those ships. By 1964, some two years after the Boston Strangler's first victim was found, newspapers reported that investigators had card files on some 12,000 people who were possibly connected to the case. Then, in January 1965, a year after Mary Sullivan's murder, lead detective Phil Di Natale got a tip. My father was contacted by Andy Palermo, the head of security at the Mass General Hospital in Boston. This is John Di Natale again, Phil's son. And Andy said, I got an anonymous letter from a nurse. And she's identified this guy, Albert DeSalvo, as somebody who kidnapped her, raped her, and a lot of the things that he did to her, she had read in the newspapers about other victims and thought this sounded like the strangler. She identified DeSalvo. She included his name in the letter. Albert DeSalvo was 33 years old. He'd recently been arrested and locked up at the Massachusetts Correctional Institution at Bridgewater, a hospital that housed people who were then described as sexually dangerous and criminally insane. So for the better part of January, February, and into early March, my dad investigated Albert DeSalvo, as he liked to say, eight ways to Sunday. Albert had a long history of burglary and sexual assault. According to newspaper reports, he was a handyman who drove all over the Boston area performing jobs. His job was out working in buildings and fixing furnaces and metalwork. You know, so he had the ability to be out all the time. 
According to his son, Phil Di Natale thought he was closing in on his man. He drove 40 miles south of Boston to question Albert DeSalvo. And when he gets there, he speaks to Dr. Roby, who's in charge of the hospital at the time. He said, Phil, he's got a lawyer. I said, what do you mean he's got a lawyer? He said, you get just hired a lawyer, F. Lee Bailey. A lawyer who would broker a deal for DeSalvo that would frustrate investigators for years. Albert DeSalvo may have been a lifelong criminal, but was he the man all of Boston had been hunting? Was he really the Boston Strangler? That's next time on Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler. Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler is a production of ABC Audio and a companion podcast for the 20th Century Studios film, Boston Strangler, starring Kira Knightley. Streaming on Hulu beginning March 17th. 20th Century Studios is a division of the Walt Disney Company, the parent company of ABC News. This podcast was written and produced by Meg Fierro, Carrie Ann Thomas, Mara Milwaukee, and Stephen Smith. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. Music and mixing by Evan Viola. Scoring and mixing by Vanessa Lowe. Special thanks to Amira Williams, Ariel Chester, Madeline Wood, Rachel Winsloff, and Josh Cohan. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Liz Alessi is VP of audio. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.